What is your mid-century villain origin story? In other words, how did you become obsessed with mid-century homes? You're listening to a podcast on mid-century home improvement projects, so I'm going to go out on a limb and assume you're pretty far down the rabbit hole with me. Today, I'm talking to Adam Stevens about how his mid-century obsession began when he moved into a home designed by Cliff May. This podcast is part one of my interview with Adam. Adam is a Denver-based real estate agent with a design background, specializing in what he calls mid-century modern and mid-century charming homes. I love that, by the way. He's a fellow mid-century obsessive, and he has made himself an expert in the Cliff May homes, starting with his own, expanding out to the regional development in the Harvey Park neighborhood of Denver, home to the largest tract of Cliff May prefab homes outside of California, and from there to tracking down and learning about Cliff May homes all over the country. Prepare for a deep dive into what makes a Cliff May home so great, the enthusiastic, creative ethos of the mid-century building boom in general, and what you can borrow from a Cliff May post and beam home if you live in a more modest one. Hey there, welcome back to Mid-Mod Remodel. This is the show about updating MCM homes, helping you match a mid-century home to your modern life. I'm your host, Della Hansman, architect and mid-century ranch enthusiast. You're listening to Season 11, Episode 3. Before we get to the interview, I just want to give a quick shout-out to the amazing group of mid-century homeowners who showed up live to last weekend's Mid-Century Kitchen Clinic Workshop. We had such fun running through a micro-master plan process, and I got and answered some very good kitchen update questions. If hearing that makes you feel sad that you missed out, turn your frown upside down. You can still purchase and watch the replay. In some ways, watching it on your own time gives you an advantage because I had to do the entire clinic in two hours. When I tell the clinic that we're going to pause for five minutes on the clock to go document the most important elements of their kitchen, you can hit pause and take as long as you need. Grab your copy of the replay at the link in the show notes. You'll find that plus the transcript of this episode and a number of really gorgeous images that Adam has shared with me of Denver Cliff May Homes and some screen caps of our Zoom chat with the model he's made of unusual modular wall systems in a Cliff May home at our show notes, midmod-midwest.com slash 1103. Without further ado, here's my chat with Adam Stevens about the Cliff May Homes of Denver and beyond. Here we go. This is so much fun to actually be seeing your face again after we met for the first time in person at Denver Modernism Week, where Adam, you are a co-founder. And of course, we already knew each other from this wonderful, weird little mid-century Instagram community. But I saw Adam all over Denver Modernism Week, obviously, as you expect for one of its creators, anchoring a panel on what homeowners should know about preserving and updating their mid-century homes based on his own experience. Um, also found him holding down the Cool Kids table, better known as the Docomomo Colorado Organization booth, where he's the secretary. And he's also a realtor specializing in helping people buy and sell mid-century homes in Denver. So hi, Adam. How's it going? Howdy. Thanks for having me. It's a delight. I've been looking forward to this. So can I ask you, do you know, when did your passion for mid-century begin? Where'd you get started? Uh, it started, you know, what's funny is, so I'm a designer turned real estate agent. Um, I was actually trained as an interior designer and practiced in the corporate world for about a decade. And through that whole time, even through my education, I wasn't really exposed to that much mid-century modern. I want to say I took three semesters of um, architectural history, and I think maybe the last half of the last semester covered modernism. Interesting. So then as my wife and I were shopping for a house now, 18 years ago, last December, um, we were I was just going through the MLS, going through the MLS. This is when going through listings online was brand new. 
And I stumbled across this house. And I was like, what is this? This is totally different. This is amazing. This reminds me of some of the architecture that was in this shopping district in, in the Denver area called Cherry Creek that used to be full of mid-century modern buildings. And I was like, we have to check this out. And we showed up to the house and we actually walked in the gate to the courtyard that surrounds our house. And my wife was like, we're buying this. She didn't even go in the front door. We we hadn't even looked at it. That's confidence. That we were buying this house. And so we did. And only after I owned this house for about seven or eight years, did I really get curious, like, who designed this? Like, what's the story behind this thing? Nobody really knew. And so I started doing research. I went to the library and I um, I asked the librarian, I was like, so how do I look up advertisements? Because I felt like that was probably the best way to get some clues. And the lady looked at me like, why would you want to look up advertisements? So she was no help, but I just got onto the microfiche, which is the only way to get Denver's old newspapers. Still. And I spent hours and hours and hours going through the papers from 1955, which is when my house was built. And voila, I stumbled across this ad for Cliff May Homes, which is the uh, kind of home that I own here in Denver. Oh, that's amazing. This is funny because I feel like our villain origin stories are actually very similar. I also went through my whole design training and all of my practice up until now working in residential architecture Knowing mid-century modern was a thing, having heard the term, but not really having studied it, having anyone pointed out to me as interesting. I liked it like I liked all cohesive design movements that right. that sort of feel like you can identify them and see their features and appreciate them as a unit. Uh, and then I bought a ranch house and I was like, what what do you do with a ranch house? I went to the library. I didn't find any books. So I was starting only about five years ago. So I went to mid-century mm -hmm. Instagram and I went to the online newspaper archive and started hunting. And I found in Madison, we don't have any Cliff May homes, sadly, but we do have actually a wonderful tradition of a parade of homes um, that started in 1952. And they did a huge advertising spread, which you can go find and a bunch of like cool features and talking about it. And that's great. Yeah, Denver's first parade of homes was 1953. And, and going through the special sections that they ran in the newspaper for the parade of homes every year is a wealth of information right? of what merchant builders um, were building in the 1950s. And what they thought everyone would think was cool, which yes. sometimes is still so cool today. And other times it's like, ooh, a built-in vanity in the bathroom with a mirror. <laughs> Because, yeah, what's interesting is, you know, a lot of times when we think about post-war homes, we think about, you know, these homes were built for soldiers coming back from World War II. Uh, but really, that's not the case. Really, those homes, uh, which of which we actually have examples nearby to me, um, were built in the late 40s. Mm -hmm. Come the 1950s, those soldiers who had returned, they were starting to have families. They were getting good jobs. They had good, you know, well-paying jobs. And they were looking for the next thing to move up to. And every merchant builder in town wanted to come up with what that next thing was going to be. And one of them was, well, not in town, but somehow. So you unwittingly moved into a Cliff May home. Let's talk about the magic of Cliff May, who was not even an architect and yet has had such a huge impact on what mid-century architecture is at a residential <laughs> level. The best way to describe Cliff May, I think, is a is a designer in California. He spent his most of his career designing actually homes for the stars. 
massive homes for people you've actually heard of. So, and these were like 10,000 square foot, 15,000 square foot homes all over California and even outside of California and around the world. Um, and yet he was not an architect. He went to college, but didn't actually graduate. He kind of got bored and decided he wanted to go into, he, at first he started actually building furniture to decorate model model homes for a local builder in San Diego. And the, the, the builder liked what he was doing so much. He found that having these staged homes with Cliff Mays furniture in it was making the home sell faster. And eventually it worked up to actually allowing Cliff May to design a home for him. So Cliff May designed a home for him and that sold well. And Cliff May then took the money that he was making and broke out and became a developer himself, designing the homes that he was developing. Um, and he was also, Cliff May was just a very charismatic guy. He was very charismatic, very inventive. Um, he was willing to experiment with anything. He was always looking for a way to build a better house. And uh, he caught the attention of the publishers of House Beautiful and Sunset Magazine. And right. through those relationships with those publishers, he gained visibility across California, across Western United States, and even to the East Coast. And so Cliff May became somewhat of a household name in the 19, late 1940s, early 1950s for not only the big custom homes he was designing, but also for in, in starting in the early 50s, this new prefabricated system that he had worked on with uh, an architect in California named Chris Choate um, and a company called Cliff May Homes. Nice to and that's exactly what I live in, one of those prefabricated homes. Yeah. So, but Cliff May was in California and you're in Denver. So yep. where was that in his sort of rise to uh, certainly thought leadership, if not actually building houses all over the country? He was building across the West by that point. Or was so it an early actually venture? wasn't. So that's an interesting part of the story is, so Cliff May stuck to California. He actually moved up to L.A., and continued building grand custom homes there while he was working on this prefabricated project. Um, but yeah, this this manu basically manufactured home. I don't want to. I want to be careful not to call it a manufactured home because that actually became a problem for him too, getting approval FHA and VA approval for his homes. They were like, "What's the difference between what you're building and a trailer home or a manufactured home?" But anyway, that topic aside, what he was really trying to build was a low cost version of the grand custom homes that he was building for the stars. Mm -hmm. And part of the reason you may have heard Cliff may refer to as the um, inventor of the modern ranch home or California ranch home. Yeah. And part of that title actually comes from the fact that Cliff may comes from a long line of um, his heritage is actually in Mexico and, and people who had ranches in mm -hmm what was California before it was California. And if you know anything about the architecture of that time, a lot of the way the homes were built were like little forts where they had, they were uh, basically like either U shape or completely a square that enclosed a central open outdoor area, but then had living areas around that outdoor area. So we're talking about homes from the 1700s, 1800s, built in early California and in Mexico. 
Mm-hmm. And that's that was his inspiration for the custom homes he was designing. So if you look at his huge custom homes for the stars, you see these floor plans where it's a U-shaped building or or completely enclosed building that has a uh, an open courtyard in the middle, much like those early California ranch homes. And that's where the whole notion of a ranch home comes from, is he was imitating those early California ranch homes. And so he wanted to bring that same idea. How could I make the, an affordable version of that for the masses that wasn't, you know, the homes he was building for the stars were like 10,000 square feet because that's what you need to surround a big courtyard with a house. And he came up with this system with Chris Cho, where it was a very simplified version of his architecture. And by using, in some examples, my house is not one an example, but through examples of using like an L-shaped floor plan and then connecting the other two sides of the fence, mm-hmm. he creates that same sense of an outdoor living space. That's and really an outdoor living room or outdoor living space is a yeah. core component of the Cliff May prefab. Yeah. So what are some of the defining features? If you wanted to describe, by the way, you've t- you are a photographer. You have studied this. We're going to put some wonderful photographs of Cliff May Homes onto the show notes page. So absolutely go check that out. But to someone who with their eyes closed, what, what are the sort of defining characteristics of a classic Cliff May tract home? So if we're talking about the Cliff May prefabs, mm-hmm. um, the uh, the homes were, the best way to describe them architecturally is that they are post and beam, modular prefabricated homes. So to talk a little bit about what post and beam means, because not everybody knows what that means, is it's actually a totally different way of building a house right. than traditional. So a traditional house, you have walls of, made up of studs that then actually provide the structural support for the roof, or if it's a two-story home for the level above. Mm-hmm. In a post and beam home, you eliminate the studs. So instead, all the structural loads of the house are carried by beams and posts. And then there's a little bit of structure that prevents the structure from racking horizontally. But otherwise, you could actually take all the exterior walls off the house, all the interior walls out of the house, and it would still stand as a structure. So it's the same way modern office buildings are built, actually. When you see them putting up a steel frame of posts and floor plates. That's basically how these houses are built. Although what's funny is although we call this modern architecture, it's exactly the same structural system that's used when building an old barn. Right. Barns right. use post and beam framing. Or a um, but it eliminates the need for structural walls. So these houses have no load bearing walls. All the load is carried by post and beams. Right. So then what I mean by modular Um, is that the house is actually designed on a five foot by five foot grid. And that's because the outside of the house is comprised of tilt up panels that are five feet wide um, that create the outside of the house. So it has this this structural um, modularity to it. um, And that was meant to make it flexible. So even though there were eight core models in the original offering, it allowed builders to say, hey, I want to lengthen a wing of this home or I want to add a bedroom or and they could take this kit of parts, these five foot wide panels, and make the house whatever they want, um, all within this ten feet post and beam system. Yeah. So, do you know why five feet? Frank Lloyd Wright liked modular designs, although he always broke his own systems. He liked four feet. 
I don't know why the choice for five feet. I, I think, you know, that one one answer could be that half of five feet is two and a half feet, which is a common door width. True. So in the way these houses do handle doors and windows, um, and it, I, I can't show you right now, but it's interesting. The door frames are actually, they expose the structure and use the structure as the door frames. So oh, there are no door frames inserted in. The structure is actually exposed and the door is just installed between two posts, for instance, on the outside. Rather than having separate stud framing that is independent right. of the structure. Well, that's very efficient. Yeah. that had, I mean, I always think of four feet as a logical grid number because a cabinet width or a, a depth is usually two feet. But it does run you into some trouble when you start to think about door openings and a 30-inch door would fit very smoothly into yep. a five-foot grid. Fascinating. That's new to me. Um, for and my the, the, the last component that I, that I was mentioning is that these houses were prefabricated. So right. it was what we call a tilt-up panelized construction. So they actually had all of these panels built to the lumber yard off-site. And so all those parts would be loaded up into the back of a truck, kind of like uh, IKEA furniture, flat-packed. And then brought out on the site, and Cliff May bragged that he could put up a house in 24 hours within the interior finish, taking a couple of weeks after that. But he could have an enclosed house in 24 hours. Okay. And so I actually, I'll show you, I actually have an example of one of the panels. Um, so this is the solid wall panel without a window. This would be five feet wide. And the houses had board and batten siding on the outside. And so... Mm -hmm. These are the boards of the board and batten siding already pre-installed. And, the and then if we flip it over, this self-contained panel had X-bracing, yeah. holding it together structurally. And this provides the horizontal structural to prevent the post and beam structure from racking. And then there's also blocking pre-installed so that even though you don't have studs, the, the uh, drywall installers have something to screw the drywall to and the cabinet installers have something to screw the cabinets too and things like that we will show and, uh, a photo this is an amazing little model they'll show a photo of this um, i have a second panel here and so when these two panels get put together you can see the siding just comes together as one consistent unit and then the of course the boards of the board and bat or the the battens of the board and batten siding cover these gaps between the boards that is so slick and, the and boards then this is a pre-made window unit and Perfect. so this is five feet wide. And then, you know, that goes against this panel. And so then a, a window would just be installed in this rough opening. You put a beam on top and then you have a rough opening mm -hmm. to put a window inside. The other thing to note structurally is that as these two panels come together, in any case, you have two by fours essentially on the edge of each panel that when they come together, it creates your structural four by four post. So this is what I was just going to ask you is what are the posts? They're just a four by four and the beams they're just are four. Yeah, they're well on the outside. They're the two by the two by four is put together as a four by four. Mm -hmm. But in the middle of the house, there are four by four posts that provide structure under the main beam that goes in the middle. And then the third component of the exterior are these style and rail windows. And these are interesting, too, because where they were going to have the windows, like the window you see right behind me, is exactly <laughs> what you're looking at here. I'm going to put a screenshot in the show notes. <laughs> uh, 
um, is that they just put four by four posts on the module, the five foot module, where they were going to have glass. And then they took these style and rail windows and face nailed them to the structure. So to the beam and then the posts on either side. So instead of being installed inside the rough opening, they're actually installed on top of the rough opening. And I think that my theory for why they did it that way is it made it so that unskilled labor could put these houses up quickly. Because if you had somebody trying to fit a window inside an opening, that becomes much more complicated than just nailing it up. So these arrived on site with the glass already installed as a self-contained five foot wide unit. And they could just put it right on top of the structure, nail it up and you had the window, you were done. Okay, so I have questions. This is fascinating <laughs> because so much of so much of the modularity of a conventional Midwestern tract home or low contractor built home, they were using prefabricated materials like two by fours and like eventually four foot by eight foot drywall panels, but first the sort of two foot by eight foot long strips. But then the craftspeople who were installing them were still basically like the people installing the drywall were plasterers. And so they would then rather than mud the cracks, they would plaster the wall after the fact. It's it's overkill. <laughs> um, but right, this right. really allowed for, for a relatively unskilled or a new contractor to just jump in and be able to take it on. How does it now suit when people want to change the house after the fact? Does it work well when a conventional contractor comes in to touch it the house? It's really interesting um, because part of the problem is that a lot of people don't actually know what's going on inside the wall. Yeah. So as soon as a contractor starts doing things, um, a great example is when people want to blow in insulation because these houses were oh, built with no yeah. insulation in the walls. And, you know, a contractor expects to find studs and instead starts blowing insulation into the wall. And it feels like so there's actually two by fours behind this blocking. Mm -hmm. So there's a cavity here. So you blow in and it fills this cavity, but it's not. <laughs> not doing what you want. It's not going where you expect it to as a contractor. Uh, another trade that just loves these walls, particularly when they don't know what they're dealing with, they're electricians. I was just going to say, just lights can't get enough go. of them. <laughs> <laughs> oh um, but God. what's interesting too, though, is that so my house is not an L-shaped model, mm -hmm. um, but Cliff may actually design these homes to be expandable. So all of the houses that aren't an L-shaped model are actually sited on the lot, at least in here in Denver, in this neighborhood, in such a way that you could add a wing to make it an L-shaped plan in the future. Oh. And he actually took that to the point that in, the, in our large bedroom, we call our primary bedroom, there's actually a soffit that runs through the bedroom, a lowered soffit, because all, all the ceilings in these houses are vaulted, like everywhere, even the bathroom. Um, but there's one part in our bedroom where there's a, there's a soffit that runs through it that's actually meant to become a future hallway for when you add a wing onto the house. So you drop a wall down on the edge of the soffit, that becomes your hallway, and then your new addition goes at the end of that hallway. So they were actually designed to be expandable. Boom, you're good to go. That's so, I mean, a mid-century house is eminently expandable in a flexible way, a, a conventional stick-framed house. But to have thought about it that specifically, here's where the hall will yeah, go. Yeah. That's that's some forward thinking. Do people have people taken advantage of that over time, or was it sort of the cool? They have. Um, I have found examples. Actually, uh, Adrian has sold a couple in the last few last few years where it very clearly somebody put an addition on exactly as Cliff May had attended, which which I think is great. 
That is so cool. So um, let's talk about the bigger picture. So to you. Well, actually, let's. So for a moment. One more thing. uh, Sorry, not to throw you off. So I didn't actually answer your question about the character, the the character, the the character defining features of these houses. (laughs) I can ask again. Why don't I? So that's how the house is put together. What does that mean for how the way the house is to look at and to live in? So, yeah, all that was a a long preamble for, you know, what these houses are architecturally. It's really interesting because they are very simple houses. So one aspect of Cliff May's work is that it was at once strikingly modern and yet very rustic. Mm -hmm. And so if you look at Cliff May's custom work, um, it was very old California, lots of stone and heavy timber. And um, he liked to use grape stakes as a finish indoors and out and things like that. And yet he would have these amazing walls of glass and vaulted ceilings. And he would break the peak of the house into a linear skylight that would go along the peak of the house. He would all do all these uh, amazing modern things. And so, again, he tried to bring those things into the Cliff May prefab. So in these houses... They are all a single low, low roof pitch, about as low as you can go and still get away with shingles, although they were all built with tar and gravel roofs originally. What is the pitch? Um, 212? I think it's it's as low as you can go for shingles. So it's like 112 or something like that. Wow. I I should know off the top of my head, but I'm not sure. Fair. (laughs) Um, the, The exterior is board and batten siding, as I had mentioned. And the siding is actually, when you get close to it, it's rough sawn siding. So you can actually see the saw blades on the on the siding. Here in Denver, it's cedar. In California, it's redwood. Interesting. Um, and the houses have deep overhangs. So the overhang is actually a half a module. So it's a 30-inch overhang. And what that means is that water actually never touches the siding. So most of the houses, at least here in Denver, still have their original cedar siding, which is amazing after almost 70 years. Yeah, um, yeah, that is really cool. And then they have these walls of glass, like the one behind me. And they have, you can kind of see the corner of it up here, they have these glass gables mm-hmm. where it's basically a triangular clear story window that fills the space between the beam and then the top of the roof pitch or roof peak. Um, and what I like to say is that it makes it feel like the roof is actually floating over the house. It really does. It creates a real lightness of structure. But overall, like that describes the whole thing. So we're talking about a very simple architectural language. And what Cliff May was actually trying to do is he was trying to create a house that didn't have a specific style. Today, we call it mid-century modern. But to him, the notion was the house doesn't have a style. If you see it from the street, you would, you don't look at the house and go, it's Victorian, it's blah, blah, blah. It was just meant to be a very simple elevation, triangular elevation if the, if the house is facing the street, um, if the, or I should say if the end of the house is facing the street. Um, but it was really kind of meant to fade into the background. And particularly when you're living in it, the idea is, you know, even though we're all tempted to throw Eames chairs and all these mid-century modern furniture into these houses, his notion was really that the house fades into the background while you bring your own artwork, your own furniture. You might have Victorian taste, but be living in one of these houses. And that furniture will still work because you bring your style to this house that's not competing with it. It's just fading into the background. 
he didn't see what he was doing as creating a new style. He thought he right. was creating a blank canvas that people exactly. could style to. And so you look at the houses that he was designing. And, and as I said, you know, he was taking a very rustic approach to modernism. But that was his choice. Um, but he was leaving it up to these homeowners to decide what is this house going to be to me? You know, it's not I'm not stuck with modern stuff because I'm in a modern house. I can bring whatever I want into this house and it will still work because the house is not going to compete with it. Fascinating. That's a very generous position for a designer to take. And I don't know that I personally agree with that. Although, you know, I love to see I love to see modern interventions into a Victorian house. So I suppose the reverse could be true. Fill it with <laughs> with overstuffed yep. chairs and uh heavily upholstered whatnots and see how it goes. That would be fascinating. Yeah. And then another interesting thing is that when you're actually so here in Denver, you can see this in most Cliff May neighborhoods, um, is he really intentionally wanted to break the streetscape. So what they what they're particularly in the 1950s, but it's still true today. Cities, because of zoning, have what they call minimum setbacks. Mm -hmm. And what that created is even here in Harvey, in my neighborhood of Harvey Park, if you look at the traditional brick ranch homes that make up most of the neighborhood here, you find that these setbacks create these perfect rows of brick houses all the way up and, up, up and down the street. Right. And there's none forward, none back. They're just these perfect rows of houses, all equal apart. And Cliff May intentionally wanted to break that because... He wanted the relationship of the houses to each other to be important and help emphasize this whole outdoor living space he was creating. So really, like the wall of the house next door is creating that, you know, third or fourth wall around your private courtyard. And so some of the houses are in the front of the lot. Some of the houses are in the back of the lot. Um, some of the houses are turned 90 degrees so at the end of the house faces the street. Others have the, like mine have the broad side of the house facing the street. Although you can't even see my house because it's behind a fence because of that whole private courtyard idea. Right. Um, and the other interesting thing is because there were eight models offered here, uh, although only seven were built, ranging from two bedrooms, one bath, all the way up to four bedrooms and two baths. And yet when you go up and down the street, there's a real egalitarian to, egalitarianism to it because you cannot tell which houses are the big ones and which ones are the little ones. Right. They're not the tallest or the most grandiosely finished necessarily. Exactly. They're just all the same roof line, the same. Yeah. Because, because okay. again, they're, they're this simple prefabricated system. They all look exactly the same. And you can't tell, you know, oh, that's a four bedroom. Unless you have a trained eye like me, like I can tell. But, you know, to the naked eye, it's all the, the, the people with the smallest house, little starter home, have a house that looks just as, Grand is the people who have the four-bedroom, two-bath home. Well, this is fascinating. Adam, you're such a wealth of knowledge that we're going to have to break this episode into two pieces and come back and talk about this more next week. But before we pause, I wanted to ask to you, what's the influence? What's the what's the takeaway for someone who does not live in a Cliff May Post and Beam home that we can learn or or borrow or be inspired by seeing and studying these interesting little moments in history well for me you know every home is different so like we talk about a lot of times in denver we're talking about mid-century modern versus mid-century homes what mm -hmm. i often call mid-century charming homes Cute. um 
all of them bring their own unique characters and design elements. And just because you live in a brick ranch doesn't mean that somebody didn't think hard about the floor plan of that home and its design and its proportionality and its various elements. Oh, yeah. And there's, you know, it's hard to create a Cliff May home out of something that's not a Cliff May home. <laughs> kind of break your heart that way. But the big lesson for me is that I got to this point of knowing all about this home and really appreciating it and sharing it with my neighbors so they really appreciate their home, which in the last 18 years we've lived here, it's like night and day compared to when we moved in because there are so many people who have so much pride in their homes now. Ooh, is There is real value in learning the story of your home. Who built it? Why? What materials were used? What's the design all about? Yeah. That is, oh, that's the perfect way to leave it. So next week we're going to come back and talk about what you can learn about your home, what you have learned about your home, um, you, the general, you, Adam, the specific, and how you've seen the obsession, the interest, the fun of modernism change over time. Thanks so much for coming on the show. We Thank you. It's a pleasure. Where can people find you if they want to see what you're up to selling houses, see your fun research, see what you've done to your own house? Where should they go? Uh, the best thing to do is to um, follow my Instagram because that's where I'm most active. So that's at Modern Atom, A-T-O-M. Um, I also have another Instagram that's specially focused on my neighborhood, Harvey Park. And that one is at Harvey Park Modern if you want to see what Harvey Park is all about. I also run an Instagram called Cliff May Prefabs, at Cliff May Prefabs, where I'm just focused on the Cliff May homes nationwide. Um, so check that out. And then my photography Instagram is at Atom Stevens, A-T-O-M-S-T-E-V-E-N-S. And so those are all good places to connect to me as well. I also have a website, um, modernatom, A-T-O-M dot homes. That's the whole website address. And that I have a curated list of all of the mid-century modern and charming homes, including some 80s mods, because I've been really getting into those lately um, that are currently for sale across the Denver area. So that's always a good spot to check to see that curated list of homes for sale. So that's all for now, but we'll be back with the second half of my chat with Adam full of ideas for how you can learn more about your home and what good that discovery will do for you. If you haven't already hopped over to the show notes while you were listening to check out some of the Cliff May imagery Adam was describing, see photos and find more resources in the show notes at midmod-midwest.com slash 1103. Until next week, have fun geeking out on Cliff May, my fellow mid-century villains.